Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. David Dacker, your host. Please check out the website, openbar.space. You can also find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Alexa, and Overcast. So today I'm talking to uh, Chris Morris, the Chris Morris of uh, <laughs> Legacy and uh, Bombay, uh, uh, MIB, and um, the voice that you can't forget, <laughs> the voice that doesn't need a microphone. So he's actually at home, and I'm at my place, and we can still hear him. <laughs> yeah, he's not even on site. How's the other yeah exactly <laughs> this is uh, a sound powered uh, phone so um, yeah we're here gonna chit chat a little bit about what's uh, the Houston uh, bar scene like and uh, how he got into this uh, you're your Air Force guy right yeah 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 that sounds about right <laughs> but uh, uh, let's uh, Chris thank you for coming by man yeah Thanks. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. But yeah, no. Originally Air Force, because um, I figured out that they were the only ones that kept the enlisted people home and sent the officers off to <laughs> off to fight. And I wasn't qualified to go to officer school for anyone else. So no, actually, actually, I wound up in the the Air Force because I was colorblind. Is actually how it happened. Really? Yeah, I was originally supposed to go into the Navy. Um, I had gone in. I talked with them. Took my ASVAB. I scored really high and they were super excited like all right we're gonna get you set up to take the the nuclear entrance exam and i'm like oh, yeah. yeah that sounds metal and awesome uh you know i was still playing in bands at the time and uh they were like yeah even if you mess that up then like, you still go aecf which is elect advanced electronics and communications they're like you know do your four years you'll get a six-figure job with like a fifty thousand dollar signing bonus like the second your contract ends and i'm like yeah this sounds awesome yeah but that's what they tell everybody yeah, but I think they mean it if you're like a nuclear fire technician on a sub. Those guys are kind of in demand in the private sector. Um, yeah. But, yeah, so then I went home and I started Googling all these job codes and like looking into it. And they all have this little kind of uh, liner that says requires normal color vision, uh-huh. uh, which I don't have by any stretch of the imagination. So I go back and I'm like, hey, guys, I just noticed this little thing. Wanted to bring it up to you. And they're like, oh, no, like it's super easy. It's this little test. Like. You look at like this field of dots and there's like a number and you tell them what you see. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know the test. I'm really bad at it. And they're like, no, like come over here. We have a little, you know, a little sample right here. Like what, you, what number do you see? I'm like, I don't think a giraffe is a number, dude. <laughs> they were like, what letter do you see? I'm like, 17. And they're like, how would you feel about being a culinary specialist? <laughs> Literally went from like six-figure job firing nuclear missiles on a sub to want to be a cook? You want to be a light cook? Yeah. They're like, well, our top performing guys are like private chefs for admirals. I'm like, this conversation's over. So, yeah, I wound up uh, emailing the Air Force guy right next door. He was like, hey, I scored this and like this. this. He calls me within like 30 seconds. He's like, have you signed anything? I'm like, no. He's like, come on down to my office. <laughs> 
So yeah, that's how I went up in the in the the Air Force. It, w- it wasn't originally supposed to be. It was a complete and total accident. So then, how did you end up in the in after being in the Air Force? How did you end up in the uh, bar industry? Because you're some, or you did yeah. wine before you did cocktails. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, so how that kind of came about is I blew out my knees in the Air Force and got what's uh, referred to as an ELS or entry level separation, which is uh, like two steps below like an honorable discharge. It's more like a, hey, thanks for trying. Here's your participation trophy. Have a nice life. Uh, Don't ever call us again. Yeah, it's like a mutual breakup, basically. (laughs) (laughs) But there's no like muddy situation with a dog or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so I got home and I uh, needed money. Uh, my dad was was selling selling the house that we were in. He was moving. We were living in Santa Fe at the time, and he was moving up to Kingwood. He's like, "Oh, you got a, you know, room in the house if you want." And I'm like, yeah, "Kingwood's really far, dude. Like, it's basically Oklahoma." And like, I'm not. Like, I'm, I rep Houston. I was like, yeah. "No, nah, I think I'm good." So I went out and got a job waiting tables at uh, Olive Garden because I had a a friend that did it, and she was like, "Yeah, I make like you know, hundred bucks a day." And like, that's enough to pay rent. So I started waiting tables at Olive Garden and then uh, got fired from there, went to a fine dining gig. Uh, well, what I thought was fine dining at the time, Guido's down in Galveston. Uh-huh. And then eventually worked my way up into like the Pelican Club, which was like their old school 80s. Everything is set with like the fan set, it, like the napkin fan and like nine different plate pieces of silverware and like three different forks. Like everything you expect old stodgy dining to be, it was that. And like thought it was really cool kind of fell in love with it um left there got a job at perry's what year was this oh man this was 2007 okay yeah 2007 is when i got out of the air force because a friend of mine got married that year and i thought i was going to miss the wedding because scheduled to be at a tech school never made it yeah (laughs) uh but yeah it was actually when i was working at perry's that they started making me take these uh mandatory wine classes that i thought were kind of bullshit at the time they're it's kind of a waste of my day. Um, but one thing my, my dad always told me was if somebody does the exact same thing as you and they make more money than you, you need to figure out what they're doing that you're not. And so what I found myself doing was looking around and realizing that all of like the old school waiters that were, you know, making three, four hundred bucks and like I wanted to be them when I grew up, but without the cocaine kind of thing, <laughs> uh, you know, they all had like bottles of wine on their table and i had like bud light on mine and i'm like man silver oak costs a lot more than michelob ultra yeah so i got to figure out how to sell this silver oak thing so i started learning a little bit more about wine um eventually found um the most american wine you can if you know nothing you can still kind of sell it and present it because everything you need is on the label and so what i had found was this bottle called the prisoner which is now famous <laughs> But but for me, coming from everything I need to know is on the on the label. There's your 2009 Camus Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. Oh, whew, made it through. Everything I need to know right there. And Prisoner just said 2009 red wine from California. And I was like, well, that doesn't say anything. So I'm like, I'm going to go find out what this is. You can't hide information from me. And, like, this was the first time I'd come across, like, a Zinfandel field blend. And then I found, like, the story of Dave and how he started, like, growing grapes in, like, the desert. And, like, went and worked night harvest. Uh, like, do you know the story of, like, Dave Finney? I don't. The only thing, 
The only thing I know about prisoners is it is annoying as fuck. <laughs> because whenever I worked at Block 7, and uh, this is you know, for the, this is a wine bar restaurant that was uh, right off of, uh, I think it's, it's a little Woodrow's now, um, yeah. on Durham or Shepherd, uh, just south of uh, Washington. And it was like if we ran out of, out of prisoner, 40% of the clientele thought we ran out of wine. Yeah. It was insane. It was just, it's just, they would come in. Hey, do you have, you know, prisoner? Ah, no, we're out of it right now, which we couldn't get it from the supplier. And they were like, oh, okay. And then we just turn around and leave. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck, man? You know, so it eventually kind of uh, garnered that status. Um, back in the day, in like 2008, 2009, it was still like relatively new. I think like 2003 or 2005, like the first vintage of the wine. Um, but what really struck me and still continues on to this day now that I work in spirits was um, he had originally like convinced his agriculture professor at like the University of Arizona to like grow grapes and he like made wine because he'd come from a wine family. But he took the summer off um, and went to Napa and worked night harvest. He was the only white guy on his entire crew. <laughs> But he was putting in the work because he loved wine. But what I thought was really, really fascinating was later, he went, once he found success with Prisoner and was making more and more marks, I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but he, he did a, uh, a Sauvignon Blanc. And he took all of the all the proceeds, all the profits, everything he made from the Sauvignon Blanc, and he donated it all to a charity called Puertos Abiertas, Open Doors, which uh, was a charity in the Valley that provided health care to vineyard workers regardless of their immigration status. And so now I started to see that I got into this because I wanted to sell inanimate glass bottles with paper on them. But now there's, I'm realizing that there are actual people that make the wine and they all have stories. Every one of these bottles has stories. And so like, I really fell in love with telling stories and I do the same thing to this day. Like every, every classic cocktail has a story and a time and a place. And it was really early on in my wine days that I kind of discovered that, like, that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to, to tell stories, as I like to say, you know, with liquid literature, if you will. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I worked in the wine world for a number of years, became a sommelier, eventually um, working at uh, The Pass. Rest in peace. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I did my, my six months that it, literally every other hospitality professional in Houston did in, in that building. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it was – that's where I met, like, a lot of people who are still, like, friends of mine to this day. People like Nate Raffel, you know, Sarah Cuneo, that whole crew was, you know, all P&P. Um, but, yeah, basically I was the, the soulmate in the, the, the formal side, and when we were getting ready to rotate menus. They decided they didn't want to have a soulmate anymore. Gotcha. They were they were just like oh like our beverage director can handle both sides, spoiler he couldn't. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot it's of conversation, lot of work, yeah. you know. And yes, the guys in that room are, are trained to talk about beverage pairings, and you know the crew that we had there was just absolutely stunning human beings. But like they couldn't talk about it at like a you know a trained sommeliers level. So that's, I, that's also overworking. Yeah, people. yeah, exactly. And I was I was kind of at the point there where. Like, there was no more vertical movement for me to take in the wine world. All, like, you know, at, at this time, when you're talking 2009, or I guess whenever this was, 2012, 2013, like, there weren't exactly, like, a ton of progressive restaurants looking for sommeliers. Like, 
they, they didn't exist and any of them that did just, you know, got Justin Van to consult with them because they were really smart and like he's an absolute genius. So it was kind of like I either had to move cities or like kind of climax in my career and I don't like to, to sit still for very long. So yeah. it was at that point that I had a friend of a friend that was opening a bar, wanted to do cocktails, knew nothing about it. I was like, well, you know, I've studied classics. I know how to make an old fashioned and a Negroni. I'll, I could run a cocktail bar. It'll be fine. So yeah, then uh, I stepped behind the bar and uh, haven't stepped off of it. <laughs> yeah, it's been a wild ride, like five, five and a half years, something like that, six years later. So fortunately for you that you have you know, found success in that because you've been able to do some of uh, competitions that you've done well at. But it's funny because um, I also did a lot of wine before I got into cocktails and it moving into cocktails it just made a lot of sense although it's sort of like yeah I, I, you know I can do this but then you get into it and it's like okay this, this is a lot of ingredients and this is you know and, and whenever I was doing it around the same time which is around 2012-13 there were still ingredients that didn't exist you know dry curacao allspice dram you know the, these little ingredients that we take for granted now and that um, finish some of these classics that um, you know people love because you know I've been using the lion's tail for years as my you know back pocket type of cocktail where people are like oh I, I want something good whiskey but I don't know what and what I was like I just throw it out there and, and they love it it does it does it's supposed to be a rum cocktail <laughs> you know the way that, that you look at it but the thing is, is that um, having that background in wine and understanding the, you know, the flavor profiles and, and having to explain it in that kind of a way, what is in the front palate, mid palate, back palate, um, all of that makes makes a big difference. It, it's you know, it's leaps and bounds in front of people that don't necessarily have that background. Yeah, I mean, wine teaches you how to taste and from the very very beginning the first time you sit down with somebody who's really into wine you're taught to think critically about every element acid and structure and tannin and i feel like a lot of people on their their bartending journey if they don't come from a background like that they're taught they're taught that things are smooth and very smooth yeah. You know, and extremely smooth and, you know, ultra smooth. Like, you know, you're, you're not learning how to think critically about every element that you're, you're putting into drinks. And which is really a shame because it's much, much harder to, to taste spirits just because, not, you know, alcohol is a natural anesthetic. You know, you can sit and taste through 30, 12 to 14 percent wines pretty easily. Anybody that's done like the the blind challenge for Anvil knows that after, you know, about 20 seconds of tasting spirits, like your palate is just gone, you know, because like your mouth is numb and it's on fire because you're literally drinking, you know, an anesthetic. It's extremely, extremely hard. But I think the other thing that, you know, I certainly appreciate coming from a wine background is when you're a wine buyer, you're kind of you're at the mercy of what you have. You know, you can't really, you can't change years, you can't change climates, you can't change the way grapes taste. You can't have somebody be like, man, this is like the best Zinfandel I've ever had. I just wish there was just like, just a little bit more acid to it. All you can say is like, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, but when you're 
dealing in cocktails, you can literally change and, and, and craft experiences a la minute. Like somebody likes a daiquiri a little bit more sweet, a little bit more tart, however you like it. Everybody has their own different sense of balance. And when they're aware of it and they can communicate to it, like you can literally take something and change it to their preference like on the fly, which is something you can never do in wine. You can just kind of guess. You can have a conversation. You like this and this. You're eating this. I hope you like this. I hope it checks all the right boxes. And sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, but 80% of the way a wine tastes is who you're drinking it with anyway. And so generally it all works out. Yeah, because like you said, I mean, sometimes for the people that you're selling it to, um, they don't have the same palate. And sometimes they think that they do. Right? And so they'll say, oh, I like big body you know, wines and, you know, you give them something like that and they're like, whoa, okay. I think, uh, yeah. It's like, you know, they, you can tell they, they can't taste anything <laughs> because, you know, the tannins and, and whatnot. But I think that what ha- helped me even with wine was to l- translate what people were saying. And I would try to look t- to what they were ordering and liking so far, like when it came to the food. And then, you know, you, you can kind of ask, and wine is, is not as easy as it is with cocktails, you know, what's your favorite wine, right? I mean, people don't know because they, they're embarrassed to saying, well, actually, I really like that Kendall Jackson uh, uh, with no age statement on it, <laughs> right? And with cocktails, it's easy, easier, but it, it's not easy because sometimes people don't know what they like. They're like, oh, I like everything. It's like, okay, that's not, that's not true because I bet you I can put a cocktail in front of you that you've never had. Um, or it's like, well, normally I drink vodka sodas. Okay, at least you gave me something to work with because now I'm going to stay on a lighter uh, side. I'm not going to give you something that's going to punch your, your, your palate. So, you know, I, I'll give you something that, that completely changed my perspective on that conversation. And it, it kind of goes back to like why I, I did competition in the first place was like to, to meet and you know, get to talk shop with a lot of great people. And when I qualified for nationals of Heaven Hill Bartender of the Year in 2017, I was hanging around talking with Joaquin Simo of Pouring Ribbons, um, originally from Death & Co. And we were having a couple of drinks, just talking shop. He goes, you know what I'm done asking people? I'm like, what? What, Joaquin? He goes, what they like. He goes, because it does nobody any good in that context. Because if I ask you, like, oh, what do you like? And you're like, I mean, I like, like, vodka and, like, ginger beer and I, I like raspberry. Like, they've already said the words vodka, raspberry, and ginger beer. So you can interpret that and serve them this, like, stunning slow gin drink with, like, a ginger syrup. So you're, like, I'm hitting, like, the clear spirit and the fruit and the spice, but you didn't give them vodka and raspberry and ginger beer because that's what they said they liked. So they're already preconditioned by telling you they like it they're already thinking about like that. So he said, you know what people love to tell you? What they don't like. He's like, that's all I ask. If people are just like, you know, just just make me a drink, make me whatever dealer's choice. He goes, is there anything you don't like? Because they'll tell you like, oh, I really don't like absinthe. I don't, I don't like anise. I don't like things too spicy. I don't like things too sweet. So now you have an open palate. So no matter what drink you serve them, whether it's rum, bourbon, tequila, it, now it doesn't matter. You can ask them a couple questions after that. You want stirred, shaken, citrusy, sour, stones, Zeppelin. I love throwing in random questions that <laughs> don't actually mean anything, but people think I'm really smart, and I'm not. I'm just messing with people's heads. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I've started taking that approach, and like, people tend to really dig it. 
because like by saying what they like out loud they're just conditioning themselves to just want that drink so no matter how you interpret it if you don't give them what they just said no matter how you interpret it like you're 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 going to, to miss the mark so the little little fun aside that is, uh, has done me really well over the last couple of years. Okay. I'll try that. But it works for me to, to ask what they like. Because then I'm able also to suggest, because if they say raspberries, it's like, well, I have blueberries. It's like, ooh, yeah, that'd be great. Um, you know, and I have, I think this gin cocktail is, is going to be, you know, this cocktail is going to be better with gin than with vodka. Oh, I don't like gin. You sure? That's usually what I ask. And then uh, I'll use a modern style New World gin, and, uh, and they like it. But I, I know that, you see, with that, what it makes me think is how every bartender has a specific way in which they process information and, and, and translate, because that's the important thing. The important thing is to translate what people are saying. It's, you know, I always go back to the accountant analogy, which is if the accountant goes to me and saying, well, I mean, what tax you know, breaks you want to use and what's, and I'm like, man, I don't fucking know. That's why I'm coming to you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it's, it's more of them telling me, okay, what is your situation? And then it's like, okay, this is what you can do with your taxes. And so that's, that's the way that I see, you know, our job a lot of times. Um, of course, the most difficult one is I like everything. And what's, so then their question is, so what's good? It's like everything. and so if it wasn't good i wouldn't put it on the menu yeah well and and right now i have four cocktails on the menu so that was easy to do the thing is 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 that it's uh it's always a matter of interpreting what people are saying because it's the same thing with wine and you're right it's way easier for me to adjust a cocktail than it was to take that bottle of wine away and say "Ooh, i know there's this other one that is a lot like it but it's got a little bit more acidity and put that one You, you just can't do that what I think a lot of people can can work on, and it's something that that's taken me a while to, to process as well, is like just like you're saying, like we're we're having a quick conversation and trying to distill that into like a five ounce beverage is what we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think sometimes like we either go like way too literal or just way too deep down a rabbit hole. Like uh, a a good friend of mine was notorious. Like like I taste the drink and I'm like. Man, that's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, they said they didn't want too sweet. I'm like, yes, I know what they said. They said they wanted something sweet, but not too sweet. They said they said they wanted the same thing as the last 1,500 people that walked through that bar. The thing is, all you heard is I want sweet, but not too sweet. But you didn't hear what they were saying, which is I want a balanced cocktail. Yeah, exactly. And like, people just like want to take that way too literally. All they're saying is like, I'm hoping that you're better than an Applebee's bartender. Like this is a cry for help. Just serve me something balanced and, and delicious. It's like all literally all that thing means. Someone tells me that I, it changes absolutely nothing about any of my builds whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. And I that me neither. But the other thing that I think that, and I see it time and time again, and this is where kind of like my kind of rebellious nature has come in really useful is like, if we're going kind of like we're having a conversation like yeah i like everything like cool you want something you know boozy stirred herbal and they're like ah i don't know at that point i generally just will take their menu and just make them whatever because what they're saying is like i don't want to make a choice i just want a good drink and i've seen bartenders sit there and like hammer a conversation for five minutes to try and figure out that like they want a paper plane but no one actually knew they wanted a paper plane yeah. they just wanted something that tasted good and maybe had whiskey in it like 
So you could have literally made them that drink and closed them out yeah. in the same time that it takes so many bartenders to like get a drink order. Like just, you know, we don't listen and, and distill pun fully intended, <laughs> you know, sometimes like the information our guests give us. So like, like I said, like I, I give people about two or three questions and if you don't give me answers, I literally just grab the menus and uh, then I literally just make whatever I want. Pretty much, I do the same thing, but I I take it to the extreme real quick for with them. And so whenever it's like I don't know what I want or you know just whatever, it's like okay, shot of tequila. And sometimes they're like, oh man, that sounds so good, yeah. So I take you know a nice tequila, stir it just a little bit to soften it, and then give it to them. And they're like, oh my god, that's the best tequila shot I've ever had. <laughs> and then other times, whenever they're like, no 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 shot of tequila, okay, shot of whiskey. They're like, no, it's like. Okay, um, do you like whiskey? So now we, we got that conversation going because they're already, like before, like you're saying what people say, I like raspberries. They're like, now I got them thinking about those things. And with th that two contrasts right there, they're like, well, yeah, a whiskey drink would be good. Boom, now I know uh, what to make you. Same thing with, you know, oh, I love tequila. Or no, 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 I can't drink tequila. It makes me whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> into a werewolf. But the thing is, is that, it it it, be it more of like a chupacabra. chupacabra yeah <laughs> so but yeah you're right we we have to distill the the information that people are giving us into uh starting to craft a um an experience that is going to be enjoyable to them because sometimes i will go straight to the most basic of cocktails of classics you know old fashioned uh, margarita uh daiquiri and whenever people aren't sure about what they want because at that point, they're like, this is the best margarita I've ever had. And it's exactly what you said. It's a balanced margarita. That's it. That's it. It's a balanced daiquiri. It's a balanced old-fashioned or Manhattan or, you know, any other cocktail. It happened to be skinny by nature. It happened. Exactly. And so with that, um, then I'm able to just go. Because sometimes they're like, no, I have another one of that exactly the way you did it. Other times they're like, okay, I really like that. What else do you have you got? It's like, okay, now we're playing. Now, now this is going to be fun. And, and through that, I'm able to craft their experience. Well, I think uh, it's, it's, I think we take really for granted, like how much information and like the really amazing things that like we have access to and like what people know now, like one of my favorite things to remind people, like canonical text for every bartender, Ted Haig, vintage spirits and forgotten cocktails, right? Yeah. Everybody should read that book. Yeah. You know what cocktails in that book? The Moscow Mule. Yeah. Because when we first started this thing in, like, 99 with, like, Milk and Honey and, like, all the other bars in the early 2000s, like, that was something nobody knew. It was, like, our fun way to, like, do something other than vodka soda. Like, we were excited at one point to show people Moscow Mules. Yes, we were. And, like, now that, like, Applebee's has them, like, now they're not cool anymore. But, yeah, like, that's always, like, my, like, quick gut check for people sometimes. Like, just remember, like, there was a time where, like, high-end members of this community that you look up to were excited to serve people Moscow mules. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I mean, I totally remember that. So whenever these, these um, articles come out, you know, whatever online magazine, and I see the names of people like saying, oh, the most overrated drink and, you know, underrated. And I'm like, bro, like now you're thinking too much of yourself. Like you bought into the hype because they're criticizing things like that or the Aperol Spritz, <laughs> whoever that was, uh, and, and, and not realizing that, man, 
some people Somebody just won't let joy into their life. <laughs> they won't because some people their palate may be simple. That they, they, they you know, I, I go with the, the idea that you know the thirds of the population, right? Third of the population have really you know palate that is not very sensitive. Uh, a, a third has a palate that is you know relatively sensitive, and then another third is, is the hypersensitive uh, palate, right? So. What's wrong with the person at the lower end of sensitivity to the palate enjoying the vodka soda or the uh, Aperol Spritz or the Moscow Mule? Because they're very simple and it's like, okay, this is, you know, why am I going to pay more for or get all these other things that I'm not going to taste fully or all I taste is bitter in this Negroni thing. I don't know how, why you like it. All I taste is bitter. And that's their palate. So... I just think that, you know, again, we've been talking this for years already in the community. If you're going to make a vodka soda and using a nicer soda, soda rather than from the gun, um, then, you know, people have it a nicer experience. Right now at Bravery, just the glassware we have makes people feel better about the whole experience because it, people comment on it all the time. And and it's funny because, you know, the glassware that, that we... Uh, the, the the rocks class that we use the the general one is is yeah. is pretty i'm not even gonna get i can't pretty get, drinks taste bad well the glass is pretty and so whenever we make a vodka soda and throw the uh, lime in there just the way that people feel about it it's uh it's a it's a positive experience essentially you know i i'm sure my my wife will certainly remember the time when like i thought like uh i remember who it was bless him nate rafael <laughs> uh, remember i saw nate with all his gold bar tools and i was like this fucking douchebag <laughs> but what really changed my perspective on it was reading was reading kazuo Ueda's book uh, cocktail techniques and in, in it he talks about a philosophy that the japanese have that they call the way of the cocktail and we use a vodka soda as an example i can literally hand you a pre-poured oxo jigger with two ounces of the vodka in it and like a nice bottle of fever tree and you can put it over like a you know crystal clear ice sphere and you pour it in and you're super elegant with your motions and you know you put it in a really nice glass perfect lime wedge no pith all like you know the nuts and bolts and you can hand me the exact same jigger with the exact same thing the same bottle of fever tree and a red solo cup and I can just slam everything in there we can make the on paper, chemically speaking, the exact same cocktail. Serve it to two people that watched us make it. They're both going to say that yours tastes better. Right. Because they've seen the care and the passion and the finesse. And they're, they're programmed to think that those things will taste better. And so like that goes into like glassware as well. Like Glassware factors into that. Nicer glassware makes people think their cocktail tastes better. It's yeah. just we, you know, we eat with our eyes first. We drink with our eyes first. So it's a really important thing. So getting... So you just touch on something, uh, the Japanese style of serving. Um, I'm not into Japanese eyeball. I, I, I make them. Uh, I can't drink them. Um, but I know that I love the finesse of the way that they, they go about uh, executing uh, the cocktails. And I work in as much of that as I can in a high volume sense. Uh, which is, you know, just based on movement and uh, and people notice. But you're right, because it is the care that you put into it that people certainly feel differently about the cocktail. 
and about the experience. Again, it's, it's part of crafting that experience uh, for people because if there is anything that I want from, from my bar is when people walk in, I always, I always say this. It's like walking down in, uh, in New York, the streets of Manhattan, and you just you know want to have a drink. You pop into a bar. Let's say in this scenario, you don't know much about bars, right? You pop into a bar. You have great experience, great cocktails. Bartender was cool. Every people, the build out was cool. The people there were you know having a good time, all that. You come back and, and you, you tell your friends about it, and they're like, oh, so what? You know where bar was it's like i don't know some bar you know i think it's called dead rabbit or you know some bar that's just i think it's called death and company or amore amargo right and but to you the consumer right that doesn't that is not into that world it was just a great experience and i think that we need more of that here because it's too much about this is what we do and this is how it is and this is that needs to soften into just we do a great job right Come on in, have a good time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the care that you put into making the cocktails, the the choices you make in, in glassware and build out and uh, ingredients and all those other things um, is what shows people from the get-go uh, that you care. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And, like, I'm the first one to say, like, the Japanese style is not, in many cities, is not a sustainable thing because the amount of people that you can serve and still put, like, absolute care and attention like you're doing competition style cocktails every single time and using cobbler shakers that require two hands so you can only make one drink at a time like that doesn't fit the american bar consumption model like that's a very specialized experience that like you know people will seek out but she read an article that was that was really cool the other day about um i don't remember his name but lots of experience in the the new york scene um and open katana kitten which is a Japanese bar. It's owned by a Japanese bartender, but like to dude in an apron having fun and like his cocktails have like umashu in them and like, they're, and like they're really great and you can get like a shot and a beer, you know, and like removes like the whole like white jacket, ice diamonds, like low jazz kind of like feel that we've come to, to expect from that experience. So like I, I, I envision, I like, I really love seeing these old visions interpreted in, in new ways, which is like something that like I think they're doing. And I think that's honestly kind of where the scene has been heading with like really great bars like, you know, Johnny's Gold Brick, you know, better luck tomorrow, right? Like you're going in there, you can get these really great like house cocktails that they have that they've really worked on, like challenge anybody to taste the Gibson at better luck tomorrow. And like, tell me that thing is not as specced and highly tuned as any Gibson you will ever have. Or like you can have a shot in a beer like you're going to get both of them with like the same smile, the same service. You know, and like the same kind of lack of pretension. Like, yeah, it's okay. Here's your shiner, and here's your paper plane, and here's your Moscow mule. Like, <laughs> you know, and like you ordered all three of those things, and like if you're in a stodgy cocktail bar, it's like paper plane, absolutely. Okay, Moscow mule, oh, cheap beer. Okay, yeah, whatever. And these guys are like, yeah, beer, mule, cocktail, let's go. And like, you know, and like, that kind of positivity is overwhelming and re refreshing. But I think in a way we also had to kind of go through the douchebag phase. Like yeah. you have to retrain people to want quality. It's something that's come up with me a couple times, like consulting on projects out in like the suburbs. People are like, I mean, you just don't understand Clear Lake. People like it sweet here. And I'm like, yeah, because they've literally never had it the right way. Yeah. 
And so like, yes, this is what you think you like. But how many times have you had a drink that you know and somebody put that little touch on it and made it that little bit better and all of a sudden it's the best version of X you've ever had? You know, it could be like that bar spoon of lemon in a blood and sand. All of a sudden fixes all the acid issues that people claim are inherent in that drink. I still love a good classic blood and sand. I don't I don't know what people are talking about, but <laughs> I haven't had one in a long time. Y- you yeah. Fresh orange juice and shake the living hell out of it. If your yeah. blood and sand does not have a crema, your blood and sand sucks. Yeah. You wanna know what maligned cocktail has probably made me the most money over the years? Huh. Just guess vodka cocktail. Vodka cocktail. Um lemon drop. The white Russian. Really? There was one night I made 250 bucks from two guys. Drinking no- white Russians? Nothing but white Russians. They were tipping me like 40 bucks a round. Jeez. It was like a chill Tuesday night at Milano. These guys are coming in. They weren't even from town. They were in town like buying a car to take back to Dallas. Like staying at the Sorella, popped in. Guy wanted a white Russian. And so like I've always thought it was just, you know, it has like that cool nostalgia, like, you know, hipster feel, you know, because of the dude and all that. But like the way that I love doing it, like you've got to shake that cocktail. So I put it in it like vodka, really great coffee liqueur of your choosing. You can use, you know, the Fuego, Borghetti, Galliano Ristretto, something that's got some some oomph to it and heavy cream. And put it in a cobbler shaker and give it a proper hard shake and you will never ever ever have a better white russian because the texture on the cream gets all fluffy the oils and the coffee liqueur start coming out stunning drink you know i did that you're making me think whenever uh, i was at prohibition i did that with the carajillo and i would uh you know people would ask me the carajillo expect you know liquor 43 and a shot of espresso yeah I was like, you know, that's anticlimactic. So let me go ahead and, and shake it. Yeah. And same thing with the hot espresso. It gives that foam. Throw a little bit of nutmeg on top of it, and you're fucking golden. Yeah, little, I used to go. With a little okay. Yeah. I, and so I took that to Cafe Brazil, you know, mm-hmm. coffee program. Got to have some coffee drinks. And uh, I shit you not, I used to go through a handle of liquor 43 every 10 days. And liquor 43 is another one of those ingredients that normally just sits there. And, you know, it'll take six months to go through a bottle if you know how to use it. And it's just, it's such a simple, it's a one-two that it's it's like the white Russian. Now that you're saying that to me, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Oh, it's, 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 for, for Mad, we took it and, uh, that's, that's, we, and we did I it. I got to have one now. No, we were going at one point through a handle a day. Because we were doing it, um, the heel Doing we did it in a in a specialized EC siphon, infused with pure nitro. So you had a siphon and you could pour it, and it came out looking like a nitrogen cold brew, and it settled. Yeah, we did, it was like drip coffee and espresso and like, literally on a good day I'd go through a handle a day in in Carajillos. Wow. I. Liqueur 43 is my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I, I've made this clear to everybody I know related to the brand. If, yeah. If Jason, if you're listening. And <laughs> I love you. Yeah. <laughs> By any chance you're doing a pop-up, <laughs> you know, Liquor 43 can show up. Uh, 
Damn. So, speaking of which, um, you got uh, some things lined up coming up pretty soon. Uh, you're doing something different. Yeah, I mean... Can we talk? Can yeah. we talk about this? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we can talk a, l a little bit about it. All the, the details are still getting getting ironed out, you know, names and, and branding and such. But uh, working on a, on a series of pop-ups, just kind of going back into, like, the, the, the Japanese school of thought. And what if we had something that we could do at extremely low volumes that was still, you know, sustainable and viable? And we could take that cocktail experience and you know, push it as, as, as far as we, as we could. And like, what if we could take the drinks that we see, you know, on Instagram, these, you know, Japanese cocktails and the things that like, you know, Nightjar and Oriole and like the Eastern Europeans are putting out. Like, what if you could actually serve those to people in like a really intimate setting? Uh, because, and, you know, take the, the entire experience from, you know, entering the door to leaving and deconstructing that and figuring out every single element and pushing it as far as it can go. It's not something you can do in like a 6,000 square foot venue. Like you got to slang and bang and, you know, make some daiquiris, make some Moscow mules and make some money. Right. Um, but we're, we're working on finalizing a, a series to really take a look at the cocktail experience and see if we can, can push it farther than we've seen in Houston. I had a couple, a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, sat at the bar. I was talking about the concept and, you know, these things that I wanted, like, you know, people walking in, having a great experience, and then just realizing they were at this great bar. And and they were, uh, they told me, I think it was Tokyo. So they were in Tokyo, and there was this row of these small bars, and some of them, there were, like, only four people, you know, have four seats. Yeah. You know, and some of them, if you squeeze ten people in, you were lucky. Um, and then, and, and, and what they were talking about is how personalized the experience was because the bartender was there telling you about every cocktail, um, and just talking to you, entertaining you because he had four seats. He said in one, in one of them, the, uh, the, the drinks were so out there that the, uh, bartender was trying out that he was like, look, tonight I'm doing, I mean, totally experimental. So it's donations. You pay for it, whatever you think is worth. And uh, and I thought that was that was really cool because those experiences are, you know, they're the things that you don't forget. I think that in the in the like you say, in the in the, in the American model of, of spirits consumption or drinking, it's very, very difficult to have a place to where maybe your sales are, you know, I don't know, four hundred, five hundred dollars a day, you know, yeah. or even less because you got to have the interest. People got to have have to want to go to a place like that and you have to have multiple because i think that's that's what they were saying is like you go from one to the other so it's sort of like a group effort yeah. uh, essentially yeah i mean and when you get into the the problem with bars like that is people would, would love that experience that personalized experience the, the problem is like they're sticker shocked to paying 25 dollars a cocktail for and the japanese like don't exactly have a ton of original cocktails they were kind of it's just a different kind of kind of ethos, right? Like, as an American bartender, if we're like, I'm going to make the best Manhattan that I can, we're going to be like, all right, I got to go out. We got to taste, like, 50 different ryes. We got to find, like, just the right spice. And then, you know as well as I do, we got to nerd out on vermouth. Like, we can't have one that's too subtle, too floral, 
like this rye, like we can't use Antica, we can't have like a sledgehammer, so like we gotta find something in the middle. And then bitters. Oh man, like Angostura is fine, but maybe some orange, we gotta have black walnut, like we gotta we gotta get weird, we gotta like make some bitters. Uh, you know, wh- whatever the case may be. For uh, the the Japanese ethos is very much like, yep, if I want to make the best Manhattan that I can, I need to make sure that I'm measuring accurately and that I'm stirring as technically proficient as I can. That's that's literally the philosophy behind it. And for 99% of people, that's going to be enough. I've done so many private events that, like, reasonable shoestring budgets. So, like, went out to specs, bought, like, a $15 handle of, like, bonded hundred proof like four-year bourbon like made old-fashioned the people are like jesus christ is the best old-fashioned i've ever had i'm like yeah it literally is like a 15 dollar handle man you know why it's the best old-fashioned you've ever had because like you can see me stirring it with a little bit of grace and you know it's made properly and it's balanced like you know we didn't tech it out there's still angostura in it it's still just a demerara syrup it's just a really well-made old-fashioned and for so many of our of our guests like they don't need all the weird psychotic, you know, neurotic touches that were like, you know, like when we were at Radio Milano and had four different salines that we would add to your drink based on the base spirit. Yeah, we took the saline concept a little bit too far. Yeah. Yeah, you had a, you started with the baseline of a white saline for most spirits. If the cocktail had an aged spirit, you used a red alea salt saline. Um, if it had peated scotch or mezcal you used a smoked um sea salt saline and if at any point it had a maro in the drink that was all overruled and you use a black lava salt saline <laughs> and this all came from like complete neuroses of like how far can we take this and i think we figured it out and you can go really really far but the, like that was really kind of a, a changing moment for me because i just read liquid intelligence by dave arnold yeah and just every one of his drinks has like five drops of saline or a pinch of salt like and like somebody had told me years ago like put some put some salt in your negroni it'll make it better and they were right it tames the bitter and like brings out the citrus it was perfect i just never thought to apply it to anything else and like i'm telling my wife one day i'm like this motherfucker puts salt in everything yeah like it doesn't matter like egg white shaken salt 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 and she just looks at me as as she's you know tends to do with you know a voice of reason and she goes i mean it makes everything you eat taste better (laughs) <laughs> it was like holy shit you're right like yes you know, potatoes and cauliflower and steak are all made better with salt <laughs> so i was like all right i'm gonna get i'm gonna get to the bottom of this so i started doing blind trials with my bartenders and i didn't actually tell them so they, they would just come in i'm like hey uh working on this drink taste these two same exact drink one with saline one with not sometimes it was three drinks and two of them had saline it was all like weird like blind and it just looked like i was you know like working on drinks that happen to taste vaguely like classics because all they were and over a month period i i swear they pick the one with saline or the multiples with saline 100 percent of the time is a better cocktail like i literally serve like three daiquiris two of them with saline and they're like yeah like these two are the best like and they didn't even really hesitate on them so i was like all right we're putting salt in everything and, like, <laughs> and everybody was like okay but what if we had like different salts and then it's just like let's get weird and then i think i think that was a case of getting a little bit too weird and too obsessive yeah 
I tell you this. This is the only. Now you just made me realize the only good reason to uh, to work solo, to not have like the people like that around. Because I mean, with with uh, Zach, uh, uh, Russell over at Prohibition, we used to do that sometimes. Like you just like introduce an idea. It's like whoa, yeah. And then we can blah 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 blah. And it was like after a while, you're going through all of this just to, I don't know. Make a white lady. <laughs> I will be damned if some of it was not completely relevant, though. There, there was one drink, and I, I still love the drink to this day. It was called the Black Sea, and it was a, it was a Jennifer Negroni with Averna as the bitter. So it was like super dark and oppressive, and you would, <laughs> like, you would. So like, it's already like weird because it's like super malty bitter like the entire way through. And so then just for like kicks, you take like an ounce and a half of louched absinthe and like float that on top of the drink. No, it's actually, it's, it's so, that particular drink, because you're like, all right, well, I don't know if you know this asshole, but, like, you can just add absinthe into the drink or, like, miss the glass, right? None of them gave the same effect, because anytime you, if you put absinthe directly in the drink, it just always tastes like absinthe. This one in particular, like, punched you in the mouth with licorice, and then, like, all the sweet notes came rushing in, and it finished, like, coffee from, like, oh, wow. from, like, the Averna. It was, like, this, and, like, you couldn't do that by incorporating the absinthe any other way. And it also did not taste right. And I can't make this up. It did not taste right if you put the saline into the Negroni mixture as opposed to into the absinthe float. The absinthe float had to have the two drops of black lava saline or the cocktail did not taste right. It was just ever so slightly off. <laughs> All right, I'm having that <laughs> moment, <laughs> moment right now. I'm, I'm, try, I'm really trying to imagine this. And I'm having a hard time. I believe you 100% because, you know, I've tasted your cocktails. You do great, great, you, you do great, great weird shit. And I still had to have your Pimp's Cup, by the way. So these two, the Pimp's Cup and the Black Sea, I got to have some time. And, like, the, the thing about it is, like, it like it really captured, like, where I was, like, at, like intellectually, like, like, focusing on cocktails at the time. Like, now I'm mature enough to realize, like, no one actually gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you would have never come up with that. Yeah, no, and, like, and, and it, it's guided me in a lot of ways because, like, experiments like that, when they work, teach you to keep going down the rabbit holes when they're not. Because, like, we, we all get on those rabbit holes where, like, I'm going to make a drink with Averna and pineapple because that sounds really good. And then, like, six weeks later, you're like... I fucking hate Averna. This <laughs> this makes no sense, and this is you know ruined my relationship with this wonderful thing. <laughs> Remember that time I went completely off the deep end? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it were like one experience I'm I'm thankful for, and like was, I mean, my wife hated hated me at the time, but um, when we were doing uh, Sapphire, most imaginative, getting ready for the finals in London, I had to change my cocktail entirely because the citrus that I had. I was using um, tangelo juice, which is like kind of orangey, kind of like a mandarin, kind of like tangerine, but it doesn't actually taste like any of them. It tastes like tangelo. And they were like, by the time the finals had come around, they were on like the last week of the season here. So I knew we were not going to find in-season tangelos at, you know, Burroughs Market in, in London. So I had to completely reformulate a cocktail, which was fine. Like I loved what I wound up doing. It was like, Sapphire, grapefruit juice, the orgiats that this story talks about, and then like oyster infused cacao liqueur. 
definitely do that, by the way. Take your creme de cacao, roast, uh, let it cr uh, crush up some oyster shells, let it sit on there for about 30 minutes. A little bit of like saline umami on top of chocolate. Oh. Do that. Yeah, it's good. Uh, shout out shout out to BLT who gave me the oyster shells for that one. Uh, but <laughs> there was there was a point because we were just going off the absolute deep end. I knew I wanted to have an orgeat in this drink. There was a point where in my fridge I had <laughs> and at the time I did not have a home bar. So in my home fridge I had 13 different orgeat recipes. Cuz there was like almond and cashew and macadamia and sunflower and pecan. Well, that's five. But then you start thinking about what else goes into an orgeat. And you're like, well, what if the water was different? So once you figured out like the baseline flavor that you want, which is like cashew or pecan, so then you start making those and you're using aloe water as the base and cactus water as the base. And then you start looking at ways of like gently infusing them with spices over like a double boiler, which is one of, that's what we wound up like doing was a cashew orgeat with aloe water as the base. And it was gently like bain-marie infused with like cinnamon, ginger, black cardamom, and like vanilla. Wow. Yeah, it was really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was like not, not that entire summer, I'd like bring things in for people to taste and like, what is this? I'm like, oh, it's like this pecan orchard. They're like, oh, this is so good. I'm like, great, it's yours now. You can have a quart. <laughs> <laughs> like just so that my wife can have her, you know, refrigerator back. Wow. <laughs> All right, so now you got me. I, I need to make my own ojat now because uh, I haven't done that in, in, in years. Yeah, I hope you're patient. And, it's about three and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. That's the reason why I don't do them yeah. is uh, because it, it takes a, the, the few times that I did it, I was like, geez, like all I do is wait. <laughs> um, or maybe maybe if you have some uh, leftover, I'll buy them from you. <laughs> We've... Uh... We've started foraging some acorns to try and see what an acorn orgeat tastes like. Again, it's probably terrible. I just want to know. <laughs> <laughs> the possibilities. That's where the fun is. Well, um, you got anything else, man, that you want to share? No, I, I, I don't think so. This is really fun. Well, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come by uh, and, and just, you know, shoot the shit pretty much, uh, geek out a little bit. Now you got my brain, uh, my creative side. Yeah. <laughs> that, that got really deep. <laughs> um, now, now, now you got my creative side going, and uh, it's about that time that I changed to another four cocktails <laughs> on the menu. So I uh, appreciate it. Uh, maybe uh, in the future we can uh, do something together over at Lockwood. Yeah. Uh, do a quick little pop-up or something like that. Yeah, we'll try and keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be simple at all. <laughs> at all. So, uh, thank you. Not even and the syrups. Not even the syrups. So, you, I bring the sugars. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you bring the ojat. All right, man. I really appreciate you. Uh, we'll do this again some other time. That is it for today's episode. I appreciate you uh, tuning in. Come on by um, Lockwood Station at Bravery Chef Hall. That is uh, 409 Travis. Have a cocktail. Um, if I'm not too busy, I'll be more than happy to talk to you about the concept and uh, uh, the ideas behind it Let's, for some of the things that I touched on on this episode. So thank you for listening. Take care of yourself.
Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and keep the conversation going.